as I said, if you turn to Daniel 9, if you haven't already done so, and we'd like to read this chapter together in sections in just a moment. But I'd like to draw your attention to the picture on the screen there. It's a picture of uh, two lines. One is a very squiggly line. The other is a straight line. And a picture of two people. And it's meant to illustrate uh, the title of the, the message, Confidence Amid Complexity. Um, as I meditated on this chapter this week, uh, those two things stood out to me in terms of uh, things that hopefully will encourage us in light of wanting the scripture to uh, speak to us in light of our own circumstances. We're not in the exact same circumstances Daniel was in, but those circumstances and how God uh, spoke to him have application for us today. And the reality is Daniel chapter 9 is one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. It's a prophetic chapter, which prophecy tends to be difficult in itself, and yet there are some uh, prophecies that are even more difficult, and this one is one of those especially difficult passages uh, to understand. And so it just highlights the idea of uh, how complex uh, what God has revealed to us can be at certain uh, times. And the reality is we live in a world that's very complex, and sometimes we feel like we're, we're kind of going through a maze or we're going along our life and we're following this squiggly line and we're not sure what's right around the corner. We're not sure what's coming. We're not sure where it's going to end up. Not sure what's next. Sometimes you might feel like that squiggly line is about to choke us because it just seems so hard and so confusing. And yet the reality is the Bible says that there can be a confidence in the midst of that um, complexity and those uh, things that seem like loose ends, that we can't figure out what's going on. And, and, and that is a confidence in light of the truth that God has shown us, so that there's a, there's a sense in which we can truly walk a, a straight path uh, through in the midst of all the complexities of life. And that is because God calls us to simply trust him in light of how he's revealed himself to us in Jesus even when things around us are not simple. He calls us to simply trust him when things aren't simple. When our lives are complex, when what's going on in our country is complex, we're not sure uh, what's going to be happening in the next year or two years or even ten years in our own country much, or even in our own lives, and yet we can still walk with confidence in the midst of this complexity. And so... That's what I want to encourage us with this morning because God has given us his word for our encouragement. Uh, He's a good, good father and he wants to encourage us as we walk through this life even though he knows that we wrestle with the complexities of it all. So let me just kind of walk us through Daniel chapter 9 and then we'll look at uh, some application this morning. Uh, In the first two verses, what Daniel is talking about is the fact that um, he is in Babylon, and Babylon has just been taken over by Medo-Persia. And so he has been reading his Bible. He's been reading the book of Jeremiah. And he sees that the prophet Jeremiah has said that the children of Israel would be in exile, away from their homeland in Israel, uh, in exile in Babylon for 70 years. And he realizes that time has come, that the 70 years has come to an end. So it says in verse 1, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, 
of Median descent who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And so under Nebuchadnezzar, um, Jerusalem had been destroyed, the temple had been destroyed, the people had been exiled to Babylon, and Jeremiah said it would be for 70 years, and that had come to an end. And so it tells us in verses 3 through 14 that um, Daniel's response wasn't just to say, wow, I wonder when God's going to you know, make all this start happening. What he does is he prays for that to happen, but he begins by acknowledging that the 70 years that they've been in exile was exactly what they deserved, and God was righteous in all that he had done. And so it says in verse 3, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God, to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath, which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And so Daniel confesses the sin of Israel, confesses his own sin, and says, Lord, you've been righteous. Everything we've experienced in this judgment on our nation has been your righteous act. It's been something that we needed you to do in light of our wandering away from you. But then he begins to ask God to fulfill the word of Jeremiah to rescue them from that exile. So he pleads the promises, so to speak. In verses 15 through 19, he says, And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked, 
O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. And so uh, Daniel says, just like you delivered Israel from Egypt, now deliver Israel from Babylon. Uh, Have mercy on us. Yes, you were righteous in judging us, but you've also promised to bring us back to the promised land after 70 years. So now please do what you promised to do. And then he gets an answer in verses 20 through 23. God sends an angel and lets him know that his prayer will be answered. It says in verse 20, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. And so Gabriel who is an angel, appears in the form of a man. That's why he says the man Gabriel. But we know that Gabriel is an angel because of other scriptures and God sends Gabriel to tell Daniel that his prayer is going to be answered and yet he's going to also tell him what the future of national Israel will be. And that's the last part of the chapters where God tells him, yes, I'm going to deliver Uh, the people in Babylon back to the promised land and they're going to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. But I'm also going to do something else. I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to tell you when he's going to come. And so it says in verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be, be built again with plaza and moat, even in the times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. 
but in the middle of the week he will put a stopped sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So God tells Daniel through Gabriel, yes, I'm going to rescue uh, my people from Babylon, but most of all, I'm going to rescue my people from their sin by sending the Messiah. And he actually tells him that it's going to happen in 70 weeks. And the 70 weeks means uh, a week is seven days. Each day represents a year. So it's talked about in 490 years, I'm going to send the Messiah. 490 years from uh, the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And so God says, I'm going to do what I said I was going to do, and I'm going to answer your prayer, but this is what more I'm going to do, which is just like God to do what we want and even more. That's the good God we serve. But what I'd like to do as we think about what's here, just for the few more minutes that we have together, is to think about some of the complexities that this uh, chapter highlights that we all deal with in one way or the other, and Uh, a couple of the ways in which we can walk confidently uh, through these complexities. And the first complexity is the why question. Um, All of of us ask the question why at different times, and we ask it in different ways. Um, Sometimes we think, what did I do to deserve this particular uh, unfortunate event? Um, But that question can be very and terribly simplistic and unsatisfying. You know, what did I do? Or even to ask the question, uh, for whose sin am I suffering? You know, was it my sin or was it your sin? Or whose sin has brought all this suffering upon me? Which is another very complex question. Many times there aren't uh, easy uh, answers to those kinds of questions. But It's reflected, I believe, in this passage, especially in verse 16. If you look at verse 16, Daniel is praying and he says, O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. Now, Think about what's going on here. Daniel is praying and confessing his sin and confessing his, the sins of others. But you could argue that Daniel was one of the most righteous men on the planet. In fact, there's another verse that talks about God saying, even if Daniel or Job you know, stood before me, I still, you know, they could not deliver anyone beyond themselves, even though they're great and righteous men. So Daniel as it says in the book of Daniel several times, was highly esteemed in the eyes of God. And so therefore, he wasn't in the exact same category as everybody else in terms of rebelling against God, worshiping other idols. He was a faithful, godly man. Yet he still confesses his sin, and he confesses that he's suffering with the nation in light of the nation's sins. And he talks about Um, our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, which means the sins of those who've gone before us. And so when we think about the issue of 
you know, for whose sin am I suffering? You know, what did I do to deserve this? You know, Daniel could say, what did I do to deserve this? Just like Job, what, what did I do to deserve this? And the answers can be a little complex. It's not as simple as, oh, you didn't have your quiet time this morning. That's why all this bad stuff is happening. Um, there are other stories that highlight the complexity of the why question that we often ask. There's a passage in John 9. There's a story about the man born blind. And Jesus and the disciples see him there. And they ask the question, who sinned, Lord, this man or his parents? Just kind of like, was it his sin or his father's? Like Daniel's talking about our sin and our father's sins. Who, who sinned here? So it's very common for them to think whatever we're going through either has to do with what I've done directly or what those who came before me did directly. And the Lord Jesus uh, doesn't say that. He doesn't say it was because of this man's sin directly or his parents' sin directly. What he says is it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now we know that the Bible does teach that all sin and so, all suffering rather is related to sin. If it weren't for a sin, there would be no suffering. And so the Lord Jesus isn't saying that sin has nothing to do with what this man is going through. There won't be any suffering in heaven. There won't be any sin in heaven. He's not saying there's, it has nothing to do with sin, but what he is saying here it isn't as simple as he sinned in the womb or something, uh, and his parents sinned before he was born, but that his suffering um, was ultimately that the works of God might be displayed in him, that that was the primary reason why he was suffering what he suffered. And this man had been blind from birth, had suffered many, many years, that the glory of God might be displayed in his life. It's another story in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 21, where uh, Israel, under King David, is going through three years of famine. And uh, David prays and asks, Why, Lord? Why are we going through this time of famine? And the Lord uh, says to David, It is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, when Joshua was leading the people into the promised land, the Gibeonites deceived Israel and said that they were from a foreign land. And so Joshua made a covenant with them and basically promised not to hurt them and let them live in the land of Israel. Saul ignored that covenant and tried to extinguish the Gibeonites. And God says this famine during the time of David, not during the time of Saul, was... The, re, the reason for this suffering. And so it took a revelation of God to tell David why that was happening. Otherwise, he would not have known. That's why I say the why question could be a very, very complex question that only God can tell us exactly why certain things are happening. That's why the book of Job, I just finished reading the book of Job. It's so fascinating to me. I love the book of Job. Because Job is so honest about his suffering, about how he's struggling. But he's struggling to answer the question, why is this happening to me? And his friends think they know. It's because you've sinned. 
It's because you're a wicked man. It's because you're doing things behind the scenes that nobody knows about. That's why it's happening. And he says, no, I haven't done anything like that. And so he wrestles with the idea that God must be wronging me because I know my friends aren't right. And I know what I'm saying about my own life is true. So therefore, God must be wronging me. And God corrects him at the end and says, you don't have all the information you need to be able to condemn me for what you're going through. One day you'll understand, essentially. And he confessed that God was up to things too wonderful for him to understand. And he, God still didn't tell him what happened with the discussion between him and Satan. He still didn't tell him, oh, this is all because Satan said you would curse me if I put you through suffering. See, you didn't curse me. God doesn't tell him that as far as we know. And so the why question is something we live with. It's a complexity of life. And we may never know at different times exactly why certain things are happening. Is it because of something we've done or someone else did? Is it because of the nation we're in and the rebellion of our nation against God that certain things are happening to us? There are uh, scripture in Psalm 44 where it talks about um, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. And they say, but for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And so the psalmist there uh, is saying, we haven't forsaken you, God, but you're treating us as if we have. At least that's the thinking. And that's the very verse that Paul uses in Romans 8 when he says, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Even if you are being treated like sheep for the slaughter, it doesn't mean you're not being loved by God. It doesn't mean that something is wrong. And Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. That squiggly line, that represents uh, many times the secret things that we don't understand. We, we can't figure out what connections to make. We're not sure where it's going. We're not sure why it even started. It's the squiggly line. It's the secret things that only God through revelation can uh, help us sort it all out. That straight line is the things revealed. The, the word of God, how he's told us, what he's told us about himself, what he's told us about ourselves, what he's told us about the Savior, what he's told us about how to trust him and how to love and how to live in the midst of the secret things, the things that we don't fully understand. Um, We watched a a movie recently where there was a death and the the mother in the movie just says, why, why, why? And gets really angry because she wants to know why this person has passed away. One of the One of the greatest illustrations, I think, of what I'm talking about here, what I'm trying to picture here with the squiggly line and the straight line is the story that we've talked about before between about um, Corey and Betsy Ten Boom in the concentration camp when the violinist uh, in the orchestra in Germany, um, the first violinist, basically challenges Corey and Betsy during this Bible study time. She's mocking them and 
She says, you know, if your God is such a good God, why does he allow this kind of suffering? And she unbandages her hands and shows her gnarled fingers, which will never play the violin again. And um, Corey steps up and says this. She acknowledges the squiggly line. She also acknowledges the straight line. She says, we can't answer that question. All we know is that our God came to this earth and became one of us, and he suffered with us, and was crucified and died, and that he did it for love. She's acknowledging the squiggly line. She's acknowledging the secret thing of exactly why did God do this to me? Me, the violinist in the symphony. Why did God do this to me? She said, I can't answer that question for you. But I can tell you what I know to be true. And what I know to be true is The one who's over it all died in the place of sinners that they might be rescued from suffering. The ultimate suffering in hell and suffering altogether one day in the kingdom of heaven. So we might not be able to answer all of our questions. We might not be able to answer everyone else's questions about the secret things, about the squiggly things in life. But there are things that we can say and there are things that we can hold on to. Truths that help us to walk straight through it without wavering, without being unfaithful, without falling off uh, into cursing God and sin. And so there's much complexity um, in the Bible in various ways and in life in various ways, but there's some very, very clear things that God wants us to hold on to. The second thing is the complexity of the promise keeper. Um, In verse 11, uh, he says, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. In one sense, Israel was in exile because God was keeping his promise. What promise was he keeping? If you read Deuteronomy 28... God says, if you will trust me, if you'll trust my word, if you'll do what I've commanded you to do, then I will bless you in all kinds of ways. But if you reject me and you reject my word and you worship other gods, you will be cursed in all kinds of ways and you will ultimately be sent out of the land. And so God kept his promise to Israel. I promise you, If you worship other gods, then I will send you out of your land. And so what God is doing in this world is he's always keeping his promises. He's keeping his promises to bless. He's also keeping his promises to curse. And so the reality is when you look at what's going on in our nation, and we realize that our nation has been incredibly blessed in so many ways with the truth of the gospel and with uh, all kinds of material uh, blessing and things, we cannot wonder why we're coming. We're under a curse because now we refuse to acknowledge God. We, fu- we were trying to drive God from our public life altogether. And we wonder why things are getting bad. Well, God is just keeping his promise. Now, we're not the nation of Israel. I'm not making an equation between us and Israel, but it also says God judges other nations, too, in the Old Testament. 
And so God, uh, in principle, will do the same thing with regard to other nations as well. So God is a promise keeper. And and the reality is, the fact that God says that he will, will judge people for their sin, it's actually an argument in Romans chapter 12 for us not judging people for their sin. For us not bringing justice. In in Romans 12, uh, it says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Where do I find grace not to punch the guy who just insulted me? Or hurt the person who just hurt me? I trust God's promise when he says, I will see that justice is done. I will take whatever vengeance is required. Now, for all those who are trusting in Jesus, that vengeance happened on the cross. Jesus, God himself, took the vengeance upon himself. But for those who reject Jesus, then they will have to receive the just consequences of their sin. But either way, God says, you leave justice to me, and you love people, you show mercy, you forgive, you do them good. And leave that to me. And so it's God's promise of bringing whatever is right uh, into people's lives is actually meant to free us. Um, Just briefly, there's this recall in L.A. County right now. uh, George Gascon is being, um, they're pursuing a recall of him. And why are they pursuing that recall? Because he will not keep his responsibility to enforce the law and to see that justice is done. That's why we naturally want justice to take place. We, we naturally believe uh, that that is the way the world should work. People should not get away with trying to run over uh, mothers when they have a stroller uh, in Venice. Uh, that sh- people should not get away with that. They should suffer just consequences for that. And so um, the Bible tells us that just like when we were kids and our moms told us, you know, uh, when you get home, your dad's going to take care of uh, what happened here today when you disobeyed me. Um, why, would, why would a child even uh, think twice if their mother said that, if they knew their dad had said that and would keep his promise? If he left the house and said, you need to obey your mom today, Otherwise, when I get home, there will be consequences. That is not a bad thing. Consequences for our sin are necessary. Uh, it was necessary to do the work that needed to be done in the hearts of the people of Israel. It's necessary in our own hearts and lives. And in our small group today, we're actually going to talk about that very dynamic, even in the, in the lives of um, God's own children, how he will... Uh, bring consequences to bear on our lives out of love. Well, the third complexity is the complexity of Christ's coming. And um, there's a lot we could get into here, um, but let me just say that there are times in the Bible when it talks about the coming of Christ in the Old Testament, and it sounds like that what it's talking about is all one event. And it turns out to be two events. Like when uh, in the book of Acts, Peter quotes Joel, uh, and he talks about God pouring out his spirit on men and women. 
Well, the rest of that prophecy from Joel talks about the day of the Lord and judgment. And so only what seemed to be one event turns into two events. It turned into the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And that's why John the Baptist, when he's in prison, sends his, uh, some of his disciples to Jesus and says, Are you really the Christ? Because my understanding was that when you came, the, the uh, axe would be laid at the root and judgment would be falling. I don't see any judgment here. I just see grace. Where's the judgment? And Jesus says, yes, I am the, the Christ. Just look at what's happening. But the reality was, uh, John thought that there's only one coming of Christ and the judgment and everything else is going to fall all at the same time. And so that's what we wrestle with when we read the last part of Daniel 9 is some people uh, see this as happening uh, even before Christ came during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes when he um, sacrificed the pig on the altar in Jerusalem. Others think this is only about the first coming of Christ. And others think it's about the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And... um, I personally believe it, it does speak of the first coming of Christ, but I think it also alludes to what's going to happen at the second coming as well. But with regard to the first coming, uh, God says there's going to be seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then one week. That will make up the 70 weeks. The seven weeks, or 49 years, appears to be the time when the temple and Jerusalem was rebuilt. The 62 weeks, that um, 434 years or whatever that is, would be the time between that rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple and when Christ would come. And many people put that to the point of Jesus' baptism. The last week, which would be seven years, would be from the baptism of Jesus to his crucifixion, which is the cutoff point. It says in the middle of that seven years, he would be cut off. About three and a half years, which is what his ministry was. And the question comes, what about the rest of the seven years at the end? And many people believe, just like we talked about the death of Stephen last week, many people would say that was when the seven years ended. That's when the 490 years ended, was when ultimately Israel not only crucified its Savior, but it also rejected the coming of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of the disciples to Christ. And they stoned Stephen to death. That was when, in a sense, God was saying that Israel's uh, fate was sealed and destruction came years later in the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem under Titus and the Romans and The end of this chapter speaks to that as well. Well, I just say all that to say that even when we think about these kinds of things, it can be very complex. You know, what is actually going to happen? Some things are pretty clear. We know Jesus is coming back. We know he's going to rescue his people. We know he's going to judge all those who uh, uh, persist in their rebellion against God. We know he's going to usher in the kingdom of heaven on earth. But there can be some disagreement over exactly how that's going to play out. Um, But 
the time I have left here, let me just wrap up very quickly with these two things that are meant to help us uh, in these complexities. And the first of these is confidence in God's character. If you notice in verse 18, it says, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. So he says, we are praying not because we deserve anything from you, not based on our merits, but we're praying because of your character. How many times do we feel unworthy to pray? and not realize that that has nothing to do with whether or not you pray. It's not about your worthiness to pray. It's about his worthiness for you to pray to him. He is worthy worthy in terms of his goodness and his greatness. You know, when we were kids, we were taught to pray, um, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. Uh, That's a basic confession. God is great, God is good. That means he's good so that I can expect mercy and compassion and and love. And he's great, which means I can expect him to do something about my situation in light of his mercy and grace and love. And that's exactly what Daniel does over and over again. In verse um, 4, he says, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness. Verse 7, he says, Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. And verse 9, to the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. And then in verse 14, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. Verse 15, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a great a name for yourself. Verse 16, O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts. And he says, for your sake, O Lord, in verse 17. And... Again, in verse 19, for your sake, O my God, do not delay. In other places in Scripture, it says things like, Help us, O God, for the glory of your name. Help me not because I deserve it, but because of your name, because you're a merciful, great, and awesome God. It says, Forgive us our sins for your name's sake, not because I deserve to be forgiven but because you're merciful and you're, you are forgiving. Um, it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which means God is faithful to do what he's promised to do and he's righteous to do what he's promised to do, which is extend mercy to all those who come to him for mercy. He will not turn us away because of himself, not because of anything in us, not because we're worthy of his mercy, but because of himself, because he is so good, merciful, and forgiving. It's just like if you get a guest pass to Disneyland, in a sense you go to Disneyland and you enjoy Disneyland in the name of someone else. Because for some reason they are worthy, they paid the price, so to speak, In their name you go, but you enjoy the benefits of it. That's what prayer is. You go to God in the name of Jesus, and you benefit from his worthiness, not your own. Well, the last thing is God's timing. Confidence, first of all, in God's character, that in the midst of the complexities, I can trust God's character. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
So even though my circumstances change, he does not change. His promises do not change. His truth does not change. What he's done for us in Jesus does not change. And yet we may have to wait a long time to see the fruit of all that he's done for us in Jesus. We may have to wait a long time before we see the fruit of our prayers. Um, God says it's going to be 490 years. 490 years before Jesus comes. Um, That's a long time. That's beyond the lifetime of Daniel. He says, okay, that means it's not going to happen in my lifetime. I won't see it in my lifetime. The answer to my ultimate prayer. It says in verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. And that's all talking about what Christ would do when he came and the things that he would ultimately achieve. But there's so much in the Bible that talks about waiting on the Lord. Psalm 27, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. When we talk about encouraging one another, a big part of that is giving each other courage to wait, to wait on God, to wait on God to fulfill his promises, to wait on God to fulfill his purposes, to wait on God to do that work in our own hearts, in our spouse, in our children, in our church. We, we pray and we pray and God says, don't despair. Believe that you will see the goodness of God in his timing. It may take a while. And yet the Bible tells us that that's the kind of faith that Abraham had. That saving faith is a faith that will wait on God, even in the midst of complexities, even when things don't seem to be going in the right direction. It says that Abraham was told that he was going to have an heir and inherit the the promised land. And yet he waited and waited and waited and The baby still wasn't coming. And yet it says he did not waver in unbelief, but he trusted God's promise. And so likewise, as his his children, so to speak, the children of Abraham, so to speak, we are to wait as well. There's another movie uh, called Hidden Figures um, that's actually about the true story of uh, women that were used in the early space program help us get into space and one of the interesting parts of that story is uh, the idea that before John Glenn would go up into space and make his orbit around the earth and be the first American to do so uh, there were issues about making sure the calculations were all correct because if the calculations aren't right somebody's going to die it's not going to go well it's not going to be good and ultimately he looked to Katherine Johnson Uh, He didn't even look to the computer, the new computers that they were beginning to use. He didn't trust all the other uh, guys in the room, all these other engineers. He said, I want Catherine to check everybody else's math and make sure it's right. If it's right, I'll get in that uh, spaceship and we'll, we'll do this thing. To me, that's just an illustration of ultimately how we're to trust God. We're to disregard everybody else's calculations and say, what does God say? 
What are his calculations? Does he say it should take 490 years? Then that must be the best plan there could be, be for it to take 490 years. That God knows the precise calculations so that we don't get burnt up in orbit or we don't get burnt up in re-entry. That he knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly the time frame for the things that we pray to happen. And so I just want to encourage all of us. We live in a very complex and confusing time. And yet we can walk a straight path if we trust God's word, we trust his promises, we seek to keep his commands in the midst of it all. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you that we can be encouraged through your word. And I pray that you would give us encouragement, true encouragement, so that we find courage to to pray. We find courage to trust your character. That we find courage to wait on you to do what only you can do. And we pray that we would put all our hopes in you, Lord Jesus, in light of what you've done for us. You've promised great things to us. Help us to trust that those things will come true because of what you've done for us, which we will celebrate in this Lord's Supper. Please help us to receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.